You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Asalaamu Alaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Taliban, and Imam Tahir Halid. And I do believe it'll be our last Drive Time Show on a Monday together. Yeah, uh, the tears are going to come out. <laughs> it's, um, no, yeah. no, no, I'm not going to mention anything about Man U's. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they've been doing quite well, haven't they? We've, we've, been, in, we've been doing good. We've been doing At least okay. two wins, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, no, I believe um, it will be my last show today. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, or however you think, but no, unfortunately. No, it's unfortunate. We do have yeah. a, a synergy, the yeah. juxtaposition between... Secular and theological is yeah. quite something to behold, but that's yeah. just from my point of view. No, no, it is. <laughs> it is unfortunate. I mean, uh, um, but to greener pastures, I believe. Yeah, it, I mean, it is. Um, Stevenage is a nice area. It's got yeah. it's uh, greener pastures, as you say. It's got a nice hilly area, nice scenery, uh, fresh start mm-hmm. as well. At the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think I'll be moving on to content checking content for Voice of Islam. <laughs> Hopefully uh, not for the uh, drive time show on a Monday. I'm going to be t- <laughs> I'm going to be sending points for the Red Book meeting. Yes. But, um, yeah. No. I mean, there's. Uh, what can I say? What can I say? It's been how many years? I've been. I've actually because I was. I remember I was here from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, drive time show in the beginning. Breakfast show right in the beginning. 2007. 16. 7th mm-hmm. of February 2016. I remember the date, not only because it's outside <laughs> on the placard, <laughs> on the big plaque. but uh, it was the date of my, my nagar as well, my mm-hmm. marriage. Um, but yeah, I remember from the beginning, we'd come in, do the drive. I mean, I've always been very fond of the drive time show. Mm-hmm. Not only because of the time, mm-hmm. because it's four to six, you know, yep. it's a bit relaxed, but because of the style of the show. It's very, it's a very good, you get very good discussions going mm-hmm. on. Um, both Islamic and secular discussions like we've mm. got today. Yeah. Um, I remember I would come out of my way, as as our listeners are aware, we have uh, Raza, who's a very, very good mm-hmm. presenter. Our listeners will be aware of him. Uh, Safid as well, um, from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember I would come out of my way just to, just I would, like unexpected, I'd just come up and I'd just say, oh, look, I want to join you guys. Mm-hmm. Um and it, it was just fun. It was mm-hmm. fun having the discussions, getting along. And then when we were together, I mean, it was. It's been amazing. Honestly, mm-hmm. it's been very good, very great discussions. Batman and Robin. Yeah, who's Batman? <laughs> who's Robin? <laughs> but well, it's, it's, neither are of us because we're not dressed up in funny costumes and yeah. uh, tights. But uh, it's the sentiment, I think, more than anything else. Yeah, and it's uh, it's been it, it's been a good run. Yeah, it's been a good run, uh, and hopefully. Um, I, I, I'm all. I'm only a phone call away. Yes, exactly. I'm sure we'll be uh, tapping into uh, our imams from outside of London for uh, uh, you know, Islamic jurisprudence in yeah. the future. I'm sure. I'm sure. But uh, 
as is always uh, on the drive time show we have well a two hour show sometimes we have one topic for the two hours or it's split into two topics so what are our two topics today so in the first hour we will be looking at de-radicalization how those who have been radicalized they go to prison and then what happens in there whether Mm -hmm. there's a system a program of getting them de-radicalized um, and then, of course, we have reoffenders as well, mm-hmm. um, and what is happening to try and um, bring some sort of reformation in their lives, mm-hmm. um, so that they can obviously not only just be de-radicalized but be beneficial members of society. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, of course. I, I mean, I saw this clip a few days ago. I think it was Norway. Mm-hmm. I might have liked it. It's on my Twitter feed. I, I think I might have liked it. But in, I believe in Norway it is Norway or Sweden. Mm-hmm. Prisoners, they have their own homes. It's, it's on land. There's yep. a land that the prison owns, uh, but it's not like a prison where there's like gates and uh, mm-hmm. like, you know the the the, um, the usual your 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 pre- usual your, your conception of a, yeah a prison. It's, a prison. They have a proper nice apartment. Mm-hmm. They got their TVs, TVs. They got internet. Yeah, yeah I've seen that before. Um, they've got as in they they'll have proper jobs, mm-hmm. um, but they they'll have their hours. But they're living like. A proper in a proper house. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll have their proper timings. They'll have their their free time, their work time. I mean, but it's a proper way of you can say embedding them in society, mm-hmm. getting or, them or not embedding. If I correct you there, uh, if I can, yeah, of course. Maybe re reintroducing them yeah, into society. That's, that's much better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they'll be they'll be able to learn how to really fit in mm-hmm. society um, and of course get away from that you can say criminal background or mm, mindset the stigma that I suppose yeah, yeah. it's that yeah. that that, t- uh, that unspoken label that you have yeah. because you have to put that you have to declare that on your mm. CV or whatever and I'm sure yeah. you know that that is a um, yeah, a, a negative point, and you know, be, and although it shouldn't be on for for employers, and they'll be they. They, I mean, in in this short clip that I saw, they they have proper jobs. They'll be working as chefs. Mm-hmm. They'll be working in different fields and be practicing, training, learning, mm-hmm. so that when they come out, they hit the ground running. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, in the even the homes, they had proper steel knives. Okay. As in, and and the and then as in, they're trusted with them. Mm-hmm. I think it was. Um, so there's a level of responsibility yeah. of which these Scandinavian, these Scandinavian authorities are already, I suppose, imbuing them with. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, hope of. Uh, it's that trust you know, which to, they give. Yeah, not to have uh, that recidivism. Yeah. I think is the uh, word. Yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, it's that trust which it, it will go a long way, really, and it mm. will show them that they're. It will allow them to want to reform as well because mm. that trust, that responsibility. I mean, you've got you're you're a prisoner. Let's say you've been in jail. You're got you're sent to prison for murder, for stabbing someone. Mm-hmm. You're sent in this place where there's knives, where there's. Mm. But I'm there's, sure there must be some kind no, they'll, of, they'll, um, I suppose, overwatch. Yeah, there'll right? be monitoring, of course. To, but to see that, if, say, for instance, depending on the crime, yeah, uh, that that prisoner is in for. That uh, they they are there is a level of control yeah. as to that, but that independence is there as well. Mm-hmm. Not like it is over in, mm-hmm. in as in the generic in the prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that's our first hour. Second hour. Second hour, we are talking about interfaith, mm-hmm. um, hope, peace, peace, world peace and harmony. What needs to be done? Mm-hmm. Or what can we do to 
make the world a safer place, a better place. Mm. The recognition of God, whether that is important aspect of trying to find um, a level a playing harmony, field, really? yeah, that that, that platform think. where you can build bridges with one another, mm-hmm. because bridges are being burnt mm. left, right, center. It's and not washed away yeah, in Pakistan. It, uh, yeah, unfortunately, we've seen mm, the and floods. Our prayers, prayers go out to thousands, all those people. Thousands uh, in have Pakistan. been killed. Um, I think over, overall, I think there were millions. I think three million, I heard, which have been affected. Affected, yeah, by the floods. Being and displaced. You know, the shows, been killed, the, the shows, injured. You know, that uh, that idea that climate change is something which uh, is is just an idea. It isn't. It's affecting all of us. Um, we in this country have found uh, that we had a quite extended summer. Now we're we're in the midst of a drought. I'm sure most of us are facing a hosepipe ban currently. Um, so yeah, this is the I suppose the 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 tip of the iceberg, for want of a different uh, analogy, mm. uh, of climate change. And uh, you know, it's only going to get worse if we do not address that problem. But that's I'm I'm sure a topic for another time. Um, if we jump straight into our first uh, subject of the day or topic of the day, which is, um, you know, with, with prisons and incarceration, yeah, you know, how can we de-radicalize? So if we look at uh, Her Majesty's Prison Franklin in County Durham and Her Majesty's Prison Full Sutton near York, uh, these are some of the country's most dangerous, where most dangerous criminals are being held. Uh, with the intention to rehabilitate, prisoners are required to go through prison work, education, and a de-radicalization program. However, according to some reports, the so-called Islamic terrorists in Britain have boycotted such measures and are refusing to de-radicalize. And so, to, yeah, they're refusing to take part in these programs. Mm. Now, of course, we have Hashim Abdi, the Manchester Arena bo- bomb plotter, is mm-hmm. amongst those refusing to cooperate with the de-radicalization program in prison. And with all of that being said, it's important now that listeners pay attention to how the media has reported this news. In the West, media is very insensitive when reporting terrorism. When the public are fed with terms like Islamic terrorists, then of course, as they serve, then of course people will associate Islam with terrorism. But it is not okay to normalize such terms as they serve counterproductive to the peace of society. In the Holy Quran, God Almighty begins to deal with the issue of terrorism by teaching Muslims never to become terrorists in the first place. Two of the very first verses of our holy book say that in the sight of God, persecution or making people constantly fear for their own lives is much worse than killing. This is from chapter 2, verse 192. And also, there shall be no compulsion in religion. That is to say that no one has the right to force others into complying with their demands or compelling others to follow their line of thinking. So in today's show, like we mentioned, we're going to be discussing in detail the prisoners' de-radicalization programs alongside decluttering the plethora of misinformation and mm. misquotations that are associated with Islam's teachings about radicalization and put forward the compassionate and true teachings of this universal religion mm. known as Islam. Mm. And uh, most of, uh, or most radical, uh, the most radical, I should say, of the prisoners uh, who pose a grave danger of radicalizing the in- inmates are put actually in a separate center. 
which is like a prison within a prison. So it's uh, a, you know a separate entity within that prison. Mm. Uh, they can socialize with each other in their own separate facilities, uh, uh, such as for uh, their exercise, laundry, and cooking space. Now, according to an article in GB News, following their refusal to take part in the sessions, prisoners have had limited day-to-day -day interactions with staff with some staying in their cells for up to 22 hours a day. This also led to a lack of trust in staff, which has further impeded interactions. Now, Desistance and Dis Disengagement Program, the DDP, is a program offered to prisoners for their own de-radicalization. Now, according to an article in Lords, in the actual from the Lord's Library, the program includes mentoring, psychological support, theological and ideological advice. Uh, the government said that uh, this the DDP is designed to introduce protective factors to support uh, uh, individuals to disengage from terrorism and try to reintegrate back into society. However, the main de-radicalization programs um, in prisons uh, are the Health Identity Intervention Programme, HII for short. According to an article in uh, the Lord's Library, this program aims to prevent extremist offending by minimizing or minimizing, sorry, an individual's engagement within a specific group or ideology. Now, this is done by completing formal uh, intervention. This means prisoners having a formal uh, conversation with a psychologist. Uh, whereby they are expected to discuss their identity, beliefs, motivations you know, behind uh, their extremist behaviour. However, the question is, you know, are these de-radicalizations in the UK effective? Uh, to speak more about this, we've got our first guest regarding uh, the subject. Uh, we're joined today by Florence Laufer. Uh, now, Florence is the director of Prison Insider uh, since August 2019, which is an information platform on prisons around the world. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, uh, Florence. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much. Can thank you, you hear for us, inviting Florence? Me. Yes, I can hear you. Can Excellent. you hear me? Yes, yes. Uh, loud and clear. Loud and clear. Okay. So we're talking about uh, de-radicalization and the programs that are available to uh, prisoners uh, within the UK system. Now, Desistance and Disengagement Program, the DDP, and the Health Identity Intervention uh, HII are the two de-radicalization programs used. Now, are you know, in your opinion, do you think that these programs are actually working? Thank you. Very good question. Um, first, a word of, of caution. I will not be uh, speaking as an expert of these uh, UK programs, and I will rather be bringing a comparative view, mm -hmm. uh, par partially on the UK, but also on, on various European countries. Uh, mm -hmm. We've recently done some research in particular on Belgium and on France, so I will be uh, giving a few examples also for these, uh, these countries. Um, so first of all, uh, one word about uh, about these programs: mm -hmm. Are they in activity, uh, and and what is what are the dynamics in place? Uh, okay. It has to be noted that very often uh, these actions uh, were put in place quite rapidly and were made as a response after acts of violent extremism. And this means that uh, it gave often the impression that they were rather tailored to address the fears uh, than specifically as really thought through programs. Mm -hmm. um, in France and Belgium, uh, some people have described the succession of different units as panic measures. They said that 
you know, it shows that they struggle to calmly think the good practices that somehow lacks coherence. Mm -hmm. uh, and a general comment that is made is that often the measures were disproportionate to the realities. Mm. Um, what we've seen in the, in the UK, uh, in particular, after the London Bridge and the Streatham attacks, uh, was quite a strong government crackdown on terrorism. Uh, and, and we've read some experts that said that had less to do with de-radicalization, but was ma more a focus about increasing penal penalties to keep the extremists off the streets. That's mm -hmm. so, a first word. Now, the question is, uh, who, is uh, who is concerned? Who are the individuals that are, um, that are addressed by the measures and programs? Um, and there's, um, there's a common point that we've observed in, in, in a number of countries is that um, some prisoners, some people are in prisons uh, serving a sentence for common law offenses. Uh, that means that for them, uh, the issue would be that of preventing uh, hypothetical radicalization in prisons. Others will be in prison because they've been convicted or just because they're accused of acts of violence and extremism. And in this case, we'd be talking more about resistance and disengagement mm -hmm. because we do have, uh, you know, notions that they are radicalized already to some extent. Uh, now, it seems quite obvious and very important that these two dimensions should not be the, sh the same. We're not talking about the same challenge and the same mindset. But very often in a number of countries, there's a confusion between the two and you will find convicted terrorists uh, groups together with common law prisoners on the simple basis of their presumed affiliation. This makes for a complicated action. Mm -hmm. uh, to go further on uh, the evaluation, because uh, in a number of programs, and, and this is also the case in the UK, there's uh, processes in criteria for evaluation quite naturally to understand you know, who's been, uh, who's been um, invited to these programs, how is it working. Uh, and, and these criteria have been widely criticized. It's been the case in the UK, and it's been uh, throughout Europe. Um, in France, uh, the Commission for Human Rights said that the criteria was, were discriminatory, counterproductive, and that they were likely to infringe on the freedom of opinion and on the freedom of conscience. Uh, because very often the observations used by the prison staff are imprecise and mainly concerned religious practice. Uh, we've read on some reports he holds religious books, so he needs to be uh, you know, he needs to be monitored, or he does mm -hmm. not speak much in prison. Is that is that an indication of, of a suspicious behavior? And that makes it for a very, very complicated evaluation. Um, and to add to this uh, about who who is concerned by the measures, uh, there we've seen the introduction of uh, what's what's been called prevention of, uh, offenses uh, in French and Belgian law, and also to a certain extent in the UK. And this introduces the notion of non-violent extremism or of pre-criminal, pre-extremism uh, conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and this is quite questionable too, uh, because uh, it's very vague. Uh, and the former director of the public prosecutions in the UK actually even judged the vagueness of the notion hopeless. He said there's a number of structural flaws. Uh, the pre-criminality notion does not make any sense, and it generally lacks a scientific basis. Mm. Um, I mean, how? I mean, yeah. just just as as you've pointed out now, yeah, this pre—it's almost pre-crime. How can you presume that someone's going to, you know, perform a crime? On on what basis? Well, that, and it's well, just that's exactly yeah, that's exactly yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly you're you're just guessing, <laughs> mm -hmm. effectively. And and I think that, that does lead us to 
uh, one big difficulty, which is that in our understanding, uh, the definition of the issue, what is terrorism, what is radicalization, mm -hmm. uh, is not quite clear. And how do you move from one to the other? And how does that exactly interact with faith or with other political beliefs? Um, so, for instance, we see in the UK the Combating Terrorism Center at one point uh, recommended strongly that, that the UK government understand better the nuances and the drivers that lead to violence, and it must be made be clear that radical beliefs in and of themselves are not necessarily a precursor to violence, and I mm -hmm. think it's a very strong point to make. Um, if we look to Spain, France, Belgium, we see that there is no legal definition of radicalization, so mm -hmm. it makes a very, very complicated standpoint. Uh, and when it comes to the various natures of radicalization, what, what we've observed is that um, in some countries, due to their to their past history and to you know the history of violence, the scopes will be different. So in Germany, there was initial an initial focus on neo-Nazi groups, mm -hmm. and then it extended to uh, to Muslim violent extremism. In, in Italy, uh, there was a historically quite punitive approach connected to the 1970s left-wing terror, to the mafia crimes. Uh, what we see today in the UK, France, and Belgium, for instance, in theory. Uh, the prevention and the de-radicalization work theoretically applies to all types of violent extremism. In fact, uh, the Islamic motives are usually very differently appreciated, um, and there's much more suspicion when it comes to Islamic motives than to others. Um, and we, we had one researcher that we interviewed, and that it said, uh, very often, Islamic fundamentalism will be associated in one way or another with the idea of indo indoctrination, with a mm -hmm. loss of rationality. On the other side, right-wing extremism will often be perceived more as the result of a rational political choice. And we've seen that it can also lead to very, very violent acts. So there's a bit of a disproportionate suspicion, one could say, of, of the, you know, the slope or the, the, the pathway that could happen between radical ideas and then violent uh, crimes. Mm. But Florence, I mean, you, you've given two, say, say, for instance, two sectors of um, criminality. So one being... Um, those who are uh, radicalized uh, Islamic uh, or Islamic um, radicalization or far right wing um, radicalization. Ultimately, I suppose from you know the layman or from say let's say my point of view, they're just two ends of a spectrum, of which by uh, unfortunately. They they are in terms uh, very much alike, but they're just like you know far. If I were to put a political slant on it, far left versus far right, whereas one is more of a political persuasion and one is uh, you know based in um, fundamental fundamentalism of a religious stance. But ultimately, uh, when you move into that kind of um, level of radicalization. Um, is not that you know that person who has been radicalized or just in in some senses just brainwashed well i think that's that's one of the of the very um delicate challenges that's there and and i think you've you've made the point also in the introdu introduction how one thing is uh the accompaniment in a per of a person in its ideological or, or faith understanding. And mm -hmm. the other is uh, the framework of the state. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think uh, those 
intersect, but only marginally when it comes uh, to uh, to behavior uh, that will, you know, that will be an infraction with the law. Um, and, and that's where most of these uh, programs um, are not really managing uh, mm-hmm. their work because, because, as I said before, I think the definitions are not quite there. And so there's, there's a mix of, mm. uh, and that's one thing that we've seen in, in many prisons or in many of these programs. There's a mix of um, aims of mm-hmm. the programs addressing radicalization. So these overlap, overlapping missions uh, are in competition in a way with each other, and they can be in tension with e- each other, even though they're in the same programs and they're actually implemented by by the same staff. Uh, prison staff will are called to evaluate the individuals. Uh, to secure them, to restrain them, uh, and at the same time to, to attempt to de-radicalize them um, and in certain countries pursue intelligence work. Uh, mm. And this makes it very clear that, that it cannot work. Disengagement progress cannot be made in such a context of, of constant uh, surveillance. That what I've, that's what also what I've said before with the evaluation criteria, is that prisoners, uh, while serving time in prison and hypothetically, um, you know, using that time to think uh, about the future, uh, to think about being reintegrated into society, to finding a job, to maybe decreasing the motives of frustration that they could legitimately have, uh, are not allowed that time in prison because they're they're uh, constantly um, self-repressing themselves. Mm-hmm. No, I see uh, what you mean. And we've and we've heard reports from prisoners saying, you know, I would like to call uh, to uh, to an imam, uh, but but I won't be doing that because that might uh, that might make me considered as a suspect. So I'll mm-hmm. rather ask for a, a Christian chaplain because you know this is safe and I'll still have mm-hmm. spiritual support. Um, so so I think that the fact that there's no firewalls between those that have security missions and those that those that have support social mm-hmm. uh, support missions make it make it very difficult. In addition to the lack of resources, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. So then, Florence, do you th- actually think that the environment in itself of a prison uh, actually, I suppose, feeds that fuel? Then is it almost like a breeding ground for radicalization? Yeah, it's a very complex question. Um, I won't. I won't be giving an easy answer, nor a very <laughs> black or white answer. Um, one one thing that's um, that's quite clear for most most researchers in the field is that common law prisoners that serve time for relatively light offences are at a higher risk of reoffending mm-hmm. because of their time in prison. So, for uh, light criminals, let's say, or light offenders, prison can be a pipeline for uh, for crime. Now, for the majority of people that have been imprisoned for violent extremist offenses, there is no past record of previous criminality. So that means that more often than not, the radicalization happened outside of prisons. And there's a lot of research made about uh, about internet, about about you know social um, um, disenfranchisement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so it's complicated to say to what extent the prison environment does or does not breed radicalization, despite the fact that we've said before that prisoners have been grouped, uh, convicted prisoners have been grouped with uh, people on remand. So people still considered innocent have been grouped with convicted pr- prisoners, which obviously is, uh, is not accepted by, by all prison right conventions and, and you know, is a cause for concern when it comes to radicalization. Um, and um, and uh, yeah, the, the grouping of various prisoners is problematic. Uh, one of the issues that that we've identified as a concern for prison conditions when it yeah, comes yeah. to radicalization 
is uh, the very tangible violation of fundamental rights mm. in uh, in prisons generally, but more specifically uh, when it comes to, to the de-radicalization programs. So these have been described as very unconducive to disengagement. We've talked before about the evaluation of prisoners. Um, you have to imagine that in France, some people um, that have been categorized as susceptible to radicalization were not informed of their status, so they did not know they were susceptible to radicalization. They had a visible label posted at the door, obviously quite a stigma. Um, and some individuals were not yet convicted, but they were already categorized as Islamist terrorists. So they went, they were undergoing programs where they were, they were asked about their, you know, faith-related motives. And then these reasons were brought into, uh, into their files at trial, uh, which is very complex in terms of, of rights and rights to defense. And it's a severe breach to the presumption of innocence. Um, what has been pointed out also is the stigmatization of the families when visiting. Uh, and quite obviously, the families are, have not been convicted or not guilty. They have the right to visit, and they should have the right to, uh, to equal treatment. Um, and very generally, for all those prisoners either convicted of uh, terrorist uh, acts or uh, called susceptible to radicalization, uh, they've really uh, been put uh, um, in uh, been imprisoned with very unequal treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, I've talked before of the extreme surveillance, the strong security uh, measures, and generally a system where they're not just seen as prisoners, but they're really seen as enemies. Mm -hmm. um, you have to imagine that in Belgium, um, those extreme, um, uh, extreme security um, wings uh, held prisoners in conditions that amount to solitary confinement, and this had an average length of 900 days. Uh, and obviously did not have the same legal safeguards as other uh, kind of solitary confinements might, ha might have. And the UN Special Rapporteur on, uh, on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental uh, Freedoms While Countering Terrorism expressed very strong concern about, uh, about this issue. Mm. So there's, there's a, a lack of transparency and there's a lack of legal remedies, uh, and all this could bring people incarcerated uh, in, in these um, and, and, and following these um, de-radicalization programs to feel they've been, they've been treated unjustly. And that obviously cannot lead to, uh, to very uh, effective uh, results. Mm. I mean, it's just um, the, these programs uh, that you're um, talking about, the, the DDP and the HII programs, sound like uh, it's just something that... Um, the prison or the governments have come up with or the UK government's come up with uh, to, and it's like one size fits all but it doesn't um, it doesn't it really just doesn't and you know you have like I said different uh, types of um, prisoners those of a political persuasion those of a, 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 a theological persuasion let's put it that way and they cannot be treated in the same way and you know just you quoting like 900 days of uh, solitary confinement even if you weren't of um, let's say you know kind of like uh, sus suspect <laughs> yeah exactly or suspect uh, mental disposition 900 mm -hmm. days of solitary confinement is going to put you yeah. in that uh, that that state of mind as it is anyway so it's not going to help the situation I think Ty's got a Definitely. question mm. Mm. and and there's a yeah, sorry there's there's a lack 
of, uh, of critical assessment of the mm -hmm. violations of human rights. I think it would really be necessary at the European level to have this to have this analysis made. And uh, it's also related to the fact that there's a big there's a big difficulty in global assessment of the effectiveness of these programs. There's lack of insight. There's no transparency. There's few numbers of individuals concerned, and the comparability is not there. So some people will say, you know, this individual followed the program mm -hmm. and it did prevent recidivism or it mm. didn't, but, but it's very difficult to compare. Mm. Mm. Just lastly, Florence, um, what measures are in place for prisoners once they are released back into society? Are there activities monitored? Um, generally, one could say for all kinds of prisoners, uh, the time of the release is very complicated uh, because most prisoners entering prisons already have uh, difficulties work, uh, housing, family uh, family difficulties, and uh, prison is never a time to help that. So all common law prisoners have a really hard time when they get out of prison. And most prison systems really lack the funding and the programs um, to be proactive early, uh, early enough before release. Uh, when it comes to uh, to prisoners that have been convicted of, of violent extremism or that have been followed uh, under the, the de-radicalization de de programs, um, there's uh, been a lack of follow-up, uh, mm -hmm. which was then followed by measures, uh, but that that raise questions because these measures amount do not amount to a preparation to release. Uh, do not have enough of the, you know, of the support mm -hmm. of the work rehabilitation, housing rehabilitation, but more have the the pursuance of the surveillance beyond prison. Mm -hmm. um, so it goes even further in the relative lack of success of the programs inside prison. Um, so that's that's been made in the UK. The act uh, in, in in 2020 came into force. The act restricting early release and requesting that the parole board uh, give a prior agreement, but it's not quite clear to us at this stage how necessary it was and if it does if it does work in france there's been a new law in um, in 2021 that allows for follow-up measures and that means that the prisoner after release uh, can be imposed residence can be imposed work or excluded from some work uh, imposed training uh, and these measures can amount to f up to five years for an adult and three years for for a minor mm -hmm. um, this this means that not only beyond prison, there's uh, constant suspicion uh, and there's the assumption that the person cannot be innocent, but that also happens after prison, one could say. And of course, there needs to be you know, some follow up uh, to make sure that, that the security is not is not at risk. But there, there's um, quite a shared concern by, by a number of experts about these what's called zero risk policies. Mm -hmm. People say it's not viable, it's not possible of uh, for an assessor uh, to assess what does represent a danger and what does not. And, and, you know, and you end up to situations where a person that does present himself as radicalized will be deemed radicalized. Mm. And one who behaves well and has said, no, I've understood, you know, I've understood, that one will be called the dissimulator. So <laughs> this bias is constantly reinforced. And, and unfortunately, prison staff are, are asked uh, not to take any risks. Um, and this, this erases all nuance. And, you know, you end up in a situation where... Where, where it has to be black and white. Of, 
really exactly and the guiltiness of of any individual will just will just be reinforced mm-hmm. uh, or you know self-fueled by by the situation and mm-hmm. the surveillance mm-hmm. uh, and and now you know what we've seen and there's been a number of programs that try to go that way although the funding was complicated there's been programs uh, where the focus was addressing economic factors talking about schooling, economic marginalization, uh, talking about exclusion in some municipalities um, where social housing is discriminatory and there's, you know, forms of administrative harassment to, to Muslim uh, um, groups of population. Um, and and some, um, some evaluators have really said, you know, the, the prevention of radicalization should, above all, require access to social assistance, access to training, and to a real preparation for, for release. This would be the best way to prevent extremism. Mm, exactly. Um, well, Florence, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking to you today on the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for having Thank me. You. Have a good day. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And, um, you know, th- this is what we were talking about. I think Florence was like talking about that uh, governments, whether they be the UK or abroad in Europe, uh, with this idea of terrorism, have uh, really just painted with a, you know, just like a broad brush. Mm. The political, uh, political radicalization is exactly the same as. Uh, religious radicalization and just how you're supposed to really I suppose look at them uh, and treat them in the same way they cannot be treated in the same way because I mean she just quoted uh, an example there that you know if you were um, a Muslim in uh, incarcerated you would feel that you couldn't ask to see uh, an imam because that would point a finger at you to becoming even more radicalized. Mm. It's that misconception about Islam as well, ultimately. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that misconception is, uh, we've actually got a yeah, very well put there, an audio clip saying, you know, t- explaining why terrorism is per- perpetrated in Islam's name. I always cite two verses of chapter 22 of the Holy Quran where permission for a defensive war was first given to the early Muslims. In chapter 22, verse 40, Allah the Almighty states, permission to fight is given to those against whom war is made because they have been wronged and Allah indeed has the power to help them. In the subsequent verse, the Quran outlines the reasons for which the Holy Prophet of Islam peace be upon him, was granted permission to engage in warfare. Chapter 22, verse 41 states, those who have been driven out of their homes unjustly only because they said, our Lord is Allah. And if Allah did not repel some men by means of others, there would surely have been pulled down cloisters and churches and synagogues and mosques where the name of Allah is oft commemorated. And Allah will surely help one who helps him. Allah is indeed powerful, mighty. What do these verses prove? Certainly, they do not give Muslims the license to inflict cruelties or to seek the blood of others. 
Instead, they establish the duty of Muslims to protect other religions and to guarantee the right of all people to believe in whatever they desire, free from any form of compulsion or duress. Hence, Islam is that religion which has forever enshrined the universal principle of freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, and freedom of belief. Therefore, if today there are so-called Muslim groups or sects that are killing people, it can only be condemned in the strongest possible terms. Their barbaric acts are a complete violation of everything that Islam stands for. Let it be clear that such people have no knowledge of the faith they claim to follow. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio, broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Taliban and Imam Tahir Khalid. So um, actually, just to, um, I suppose, underline the comments that uh, uh, our previous guest had said, regarding these programs, Florence uh, Laufer, uh, as quoted by The Telegraph, uh, the investigation carried out by Chief Inspector of Prisons, Charlie Taylor, stated that the expectation that men should address their offending behaviour by completing a formal intervention aimed at de-radicalising their beliefs was proving unrealistic. Mr. Taylor said that prison officers need to set more realistic and achievable targets in order to help the terrorists take smaller steps towards progression and behaviour change. He further added, not all staff we spoke to were sure about how their work would promote progression progression, and lacked an awareness of how best to deliver a more enabling and psychologically informed approach to changing prisoners' behaviour. And you can imagine that, yeah, Tahir, that you are, uh, you're not just there as a prison uh, officer to you know for the security of the prisoner you're there also as effectively a therapist yeah so how can you have so many hats to your profession mm. yeah I mean, ultimately it's about re- reformation mm-hmm. and at, at the same time making them feel make obviously you you realize you've made a mistake or you've committed a crime mm-hmm. but at the same time it's about helping that realization mm make you want to be a better person yeah exactly. make you want to change and to talk more about this actually uh, we are going to our next guest sicarius mcgrath uh, previously involved in organized crime now advocating gang violence and re- violence reduction and offender rehabilitation sicarius good afternoon peace be upon you and welcome to the drive time show hi hi a pleasure to have you here with us today um we're talking about um de-radicalization um and of course, I mean, we know prison services and probation services are they're, they're offered to prisoners for their rehabilitation. My question is, do they work? And if not, what obstacles do prisoners face in their rehabilitation? Uh, are you talking in terms of, of de-radicalization in the sense of uh, those who suspected them being involved in uh, 
if you can just explain the buffet just so I've got a better understanding. So, of course, there's those who have committed crimes that could be uh, that could be political uh, radicalization, or that could be a, a theological, a religious radicalization. But there are obviously there are programs which are they're they're, they're made to try and rehabilitate, try and help people, try to bring them back on course and uh, away from that, you can say, mindset, that radicalised yes. mindset. Do they do these programmes work? Yeah, I, I'm I'm doubtful as to whether they do. I, I was told I had to complete the prevent programme. I didn't have to do it in the end because I didn't need to do it and I argued against that point. But whilst, in custody, whilst I was in custody, I was being accused of being affiliated to to, to uh, terrorist groups uh, alleg- allegedly and um, the staff would tell me to uh, not mix like I'd go to gym and I'd train with Muslim prisoners the staff would be telling me not to mix with those Muslim prisoners because it would be detrimental to my progression now uh, the staff in my opinion were creating division and segregation between different religions and different cultures and different races and and that was uh, more in the closest state than the open state it was more diverse and more it was more relaxed, but in the closed estate in the Katsi prison I was in in North Wales, um, the staff were very divisive uh, and they were very critical towards those who practiced the religion of Islam. Mm. So, Sikaris, yeah, you've been to prison multiple times. Now, yeah, if you don't mind me asking you, what led you to offend repeatedly? Um, I mean, were you not fearful of the fact that of you know of going back to prison? Well, I, I was involved in organised crime mm-hmm. uh, for, for quite for quite some time, and um, my previous uh, spells in custody, I, I never had the correct intervention. I never had the correct support upon release. I never had the correct interventions while I was in custody. So, I believe primarily that was the reason as to why I went on to reoffend. Had I had the correct intervention in the first instance, and then the likelihood is I, I would not have continued to offend. Mm. So when you say the correct intervention, I mean, I, I don't know if you heard um, the you know, earlier on in the show when we were speaking to Florence uh, regarding that. And from her opinion was that, you know, these programs uh, that are currently uh, in place, uh, the uh, desistance and disengagement program, the health identity intervention programs, these, unfortunately, they, they're kind of because of the, the the nature of prison itself how can you have these programs which you're, you're trying to i suppose take away that uh the, you know whatever it is that makes you want to reoffend, but yeah. also you're trying to keep a lid on that offender as well so yeah. it's 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 almost like uh i don't know how to, to, to describe it yeah it's uh, it's well, a quandary right you know, you're yeah, trying to yeah. you're trying to prevent the prisoner, but also you're trying to help the prisoner in the same way uh, to to I suppose you know re uh, you know re um, what is the word kind of get back you know, to 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 not to reoffend and to become a member of society again. So is is that what you mean that these programs just fail to do that? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, um, I've completed numerous programs. Um, and I was assessed for the Kaizen uh, General Violence Programme, which is the most intense of the interventions. And I was also a mentor, which I used to mentor people on programmes uh, and assist them with the work they were doing. And my personal opinion is these programmes are not effective. 
they are designed to, to similar to cognitive behavioural programmes where they're designed to give individuals the skills not to reoffend, but they're not addressing the root cause as to reoffending. If someone's uh, reoffending for financial gain, then no matter what skills they're given uh, in in terms of cognitive behavioural therapy related uh, skills, then that's not going to that's not going to stop them reoffending, is it? Because you know the, not, the not monetary gain. gain. Yeah, exactly. The monetary gain is going to be too great, or that 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 pull from the monetary yes. gain is going to be too too great. Well, and, and unless you're giving these people the adequate skills to go and acquire employment, mm-hmm. sustainable employment upon release, then these people are going to reoffend. They have no other source of income. They can't source a legitimate income because they haven't got the adequate skills. Mm-hmm. So it, it serves no purpose in doing. Uh, an intervention, i.e. Kaizen or, or thinking skills, mm-hmm. when it, the, the cause of the initial offending is for financial gain. So you need to address the root cause of the offence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Scarius, what what helped you to go into that path of reformation um, and then ultimately advocate against gang violence, organised crime? It, it was when I was in custody. I, I watched a documentary that was filmed uh, based upon uh, a murder of a, a young child in the pool, uh, a gun murder. Uh, and that was what resulted in me having that moment and that reflection and deciding this way for me. Uh, I didn't want to continue down that lifestyle. And uh, from that point, I changed. Uh, and, and I've, uh, since being released, I've tried to, even whilst in custody, was helping others to reform and rehabilitate. And I've continued that work upon release. But, in, in I mean, that is, uh, obviously, that's very... Uh, for you yourself, you'd feel obviously you, you've you've come onto the right path. You've you felt that you're you're away from that that society, that that mindset where people are evo- involved in that sort of crime. But was there some sort of backlash uh, being involved in some sort of organised crime as such? Would was there any repercussion in a way? Uh, as in what sense? As in not wanting to be involved in doing criminal activity anymore from whoever was organising crime. Oh yes, uh, I've had a lot of criticism from criminals and organised organised uh, crime groups. I've had a lot of criticism, especially when I engage with the authorities, for example, um, or I'm discussing issues with local councillors. I'm, I'm deemed as you know, I'm, I'm looked down on by the criminal underworld. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's it's a decision, an informed decision that I chose to make, and, and it's it's one that I've stood by. Mm. But unfortunately, I haven't had. The support which I believe I ought to have, I've had no support since release, uh, and I think the support that prisoners are given upon release is substandard and, and it's not not adequate. Mm. So, I mean, Sakaris, yeah, based on your own experience, uh, and you're saying that you know there's inadequate um, follow-up for uh, for you know for offenders who have left custody. 100%. So, so you know, based on your experience, you know, what is the solution to knife crimes and gang violence? This organised gang uh, behaviour. Even if I may add, for the, the, let's say the, the 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 gangs that you had left, mm-hmm. what can be done to try and help them as well, and trying to bring them onto the right path? <coughs> well, I, I was in discussion with with a senior police officer uh, recently from uh, the West Midlands Police, and my uh, suggestion to him was mediation uh, with gang members prior to release because some people do go back into gang uh, go back into gangs because of their rivalry so if they've got an issue with someone in their neighborhood then they're going to resort back to being in a gang or to firearms or weapons as a result to settle that dispute so one of the things i suggested to this police officer and uh, by the sound of it he took it on board is 
gang mediation before these people are released from custody. So you're going into the prisons and mediating with them um, and mediating between the two sides to, to try and quash, quash the disagreement and, and, and make, you know, make not so much friends again, but so there's no so there's no bad blood between them. Yeah, and then so when they come into the community, then they have a better opportunity of going to be able to look for work. Because if you've got gang rivals looking for you, you can't go to work nine to five, mm-hmm. for example, at McDonald's, and, and then your rival gang member is turning up outside trying to kill you. So those issues need to be remedied prior to release. And then also, you know, you need to look at employment and how the individual can source a legitimate income. But the gang rivalry needs to be addressed in the first instance. Mm. first and foremost mm. well uh, Sicarius thank you very much for uh, joining us today on the Drive Time Show and uh, giving us a kind of like a, a look into actually the, 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 the reality of going through custody and actually getting out through the other side mm. and, and of course I mean we hope and pray that you can find that support that you're mm-hmm. looking for yeah. and if not we the Voice of Islam Radio is always here to support anytime any place we're, we're always yes, here to help as well Mm-hmm. Most appreciated, and also the, the, the company I'm working in conjunction with is OCG Solutions. That's who uh, I've been doing voluntary work with, uh, volunteering with, and trying to help people. It's called OCG mm-hmm. uh, Solutions UK. So, if there's anyone that wanted to get in touch with that, that wants to try and come on board and do community projects and so on, then feel feel free to get in touch with them. Excellent. Okay. okay. Have a good day, Sicarius. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK if you want to join in the uh, conversation regarding this. I mean, it's, it is worrying, isn't it, when we hear from actually a uh, an ex-offender and uh, someone who is looking at different prison systems uh, globally that, you know, um, they come up with the same, basically the same arguments and mm-hmm. the same same views regarding uh, yeah, every country's prison system. Mm. I mean, there should be programs, you can say, um, which are made or based on individuals, on the type of crime, on the, you can say, their mindset, really. If mm-hmm. someone's um, been uh, incarcerated because of gang crime, yeah, organized crime, that can be knife, that can be. Uh, just just ordinary gang crime mm-hmm. criminal behavior um there should be a set program for them if someone's mm-hmm. involved in drug abuse mm-hmm. and has been in- incarcerated in prison because of that there should be a program which mm-hmm. meets and I their requirements actually what you're pointing out is something that Zakaris pointed out it's that uh, prison authorities uh, if they truly want to uh, reduce the level of recidivism then really they need to look at the motives of the criminals themselves, whether it be religious, yeah, yeah or political, political or monetary, yeah. right? So you need to, I suppose, have those main definitions, and then you have different levels within that. Yeah. But in in terms of you know uh, the misconceptions of Islam and how uh, that has been turned, I mean, if we look at jihad, for instance, yeah, yeah. what can we say about that? So, just I mean, we, 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 as we are discussing incarceration, that radicalization whether that's political but on an extreme and on a religious perspective mm. uh, jihad has been t- painted with a very bad brush um, mm-hmm. the, the whole the, that picture which Islam is painted with uh, not only just by overzealous preachers and radical Muslim scholars but the media as well um, has distorted the image of Islam now the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community he 
he recognized this dangerous trend that was entirely contrary to the teachings of the Holy Quran. Um, and he he wrote a book over a hundred years ago about the British titled "The British Government and Jihad." Um, and uh, just I want to touch on this briefly, and we'll continue after the news as well. But he said it should be remembered that today's Islamic scholars, who are called Malvis, completely misunderstand jihad and misrepresent it to the general public. The public's violent instincts are inflamed as a result, and they are stripped of all noble human virtues. I know for certain that the Malvis who persist in propagating these blood-splattered doctrines are in fact responsible for murders committed by ignorant, egotistical people. They should remember that their understanding of jihad is not correct and human sympathy and compassion are its first casualties. Uh, so essentially, jihad means to strive, to struggle, to be a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's categories which the, which Islam talks about, the greater jihad, the lesser jihad, mm-hmm. and what these refer to. Um, and we're going to discuss this just after the news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Tahir Khalid for the final time. Oh, don't say that. But it is. Yeah. yeah but yeah. As, as with all things that come, to, good things must come to an end, uh, something new will begin. Right. Yeah. So that's that's how we look at it. Uh, because we are, you know, Voice of Islam, uh, an Islamic channel, mm. you know, all things are transitory yeah. in this world. So, you know, we, we make the best of it uh, as we have paradise on earth, as there is paradise in heaven. Yeah. Beautifully put. Yeah. Um, but just to conclude the last program, the last hour, really, we were mm-hmm. talking about radicalization, de radicalization, uh, re offenders. Um, and we touched upon the misconception, the misconception of mm-hmm. um, Islamic terrorists mm-hmm. and jihad. Um, why Muslims are thinking that it is their duty to do jihad, whether that means to go out and kill people, cause mayhem, cause chaos in society. And who are those people that are causing these kind of um, this, this chaos, really? Mm-hmm. Um, who is behind them? Why is there this misconception? That Islam teaches uh, such uh, terrorism, really, mm. um, which is completely against um, the true teachings of Islam. Um, and just to touch on what jihad means, the the Arabic word jihad it comes from the verb jahada, uh, which means to strive or struggle. And Islamic t- in, in Islamic terminology, it means to make an effort to endeavor and to strive for a noble cause. And uh, the word generally is used to describe any type of striving in the cause of God. Now, there are three types of jihad, three main categories. One is jihad akbar which is the, the great jihad or the, the greatest jihad, jihad akbar You can say the, the greatest jihad. Um, and this is the jihad or the struggle for self-reformation. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the struggle is against our own temptations, 
such as greed, lust, ego, uh, ego other worldly temptations, mm-hmm. materialistic temptations. And this is a journey of, of a person from an animalistic state of existence, meaning living for immediate gratification, like we've discussed, or to gain to one where his psyche is disciplined enough to exercise moral control. So it's from it's that control which is mm-hmm. which is taught uh, and and in which he is you can say um he he struggles to and he strives to become a better person ultimately uh, and this type of jihad is obligatory on every muslim every day so that he's always trying to do his self reformation whether mm-hmm. that's through prayers whether that's through the recitation of the holy quran you're continuously constantly trying to become a better muslim mm, to elevate yourself exactly then the second type of jihad is jihad al-kabir and that is known as a, a major jihad a great jihad not the greatest as the first level it's a great jihad jihad al-kabir a great jihad and this is the jihad of the propagation of the truth mm-hmm. and this is the the jihad of or the the striving to spread the message of islam mm-hmm. the message of the quran and this is the, the quran has used this uh, has referred to this as well um in in a number of places where to to call to people into the way of god in this way mm-hmm. um through the holy quran and the words jihad has been used there to strive to bring people away uh, bring people to god mm-hmm. uh, to religion um through the holy quran uh, to to with wisdom and goodly exhortation um and then it also prohibits the use of any coercion any force um in chapter 2 verse 257 we know of a very famous verse we've spoken about it a number of times there's no compulsion, compulsion in religion. religion um and surely right has become distinct from wrong mm-hmm. so whoever refuses to be led by those who transgress and and believes in allah has surely grasped a strong handle which knows no breaking and allah is all hearing or knowing and then the this so this is um this is so anyone really who devotes his time his effort his wealth or knowledge to the cause of righteousness is practicing jihad al-kabir the great jihad mm-hmm. uh, again this is obligatory in all muslims and then we have jihad al-asghar this is the lowest jihad asghar in arabic means the lowest um and this is the jihad of a defensive battle and the quran has clearly restricted this type of jihad to certain conditions while forbidding transgression of any sort so at the time of the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him when the disbelievers were coming to kill him then he was given permission to take up arms in mm-hmm. self defense mm-hmm. and this is that just as that meaning of jihad that when you are being attacked then for self defense you are allowed to take up arms to defend yourself to defend and again the quran speaks that if you do not self defend then not only will islam be finished and destroyed and mosques will be destroyed but churches won't be saved synagogues won't be saved all places of worship they will also be affected mm-hmm. and impacted because you're not defending yourselves mm-hmm. so this uh, this this is only a defensive war a defensive battle not an offensive one mm-hmm. uh, and the quran states as well and in chapter 2 verse 191 and fight in the cause of god against those who fight against you but do not transgress surely allah loves not the transgressors um and if we look into the history of islam or the battles which took place in the time of the holy prophet there are a number of conditions um which the holy prophet had guided the muslims that when you're when you're fighting someone 
you have to make sure you're only fighting those who take up arms against you. You're not fighting or, or killing any random person on the street. Mm. Their family, their kith yeah. and kin. Their kith and kin and their, and their belongings. You don't mm-hmm. harm their property. You don't burn their land. Uh, if, you're, you, if, if someone's fighting against you and they drop their sword, they drop their arms, then you stop fighting as well. You fight until they're offensive against you. Mm. When they stop, then you stop as well. Mm. So there's a number of different conditions um, um, which the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had put in place for this mm. lowest kind of jihad. Mm. And again, this was for a specific time, for a specific mm. time, for a specific era, for a specific period, mm. which the Quran has spoken about as well, um, that they were allowed only for, for this because their religion was at threat, their mm. lives were being threatened. So, I mean, given that beautiful explanation of the different aspects, the three types of jihad that we are as Muslims are allowed to engage in uh, and actually are um, encouraged to engage in, definitely the first two, right? Um, You can see how uh, groups like ISIS have basically hijacked the idea of jihad. Um, I suppose in some sense... Uh, muddied the waters and mm. made it such that you know the the lesser jihad is more crucial and in fact uh, not uh, actually transgressed to such an extent that instead of being defensive purely for self-defense they have taken it upon themselves to actually be the aggressor mm. and then you know that act in itself shows that it is actually not true Islam. Mm, and we, I think with the rise of radicalization we've seen with 9-11, um, mm. which kind of started a wave. It was before that, but this mm. had really started a wave. Um, and then we see with the Arab Spring as well, when we see Western countries coming in, mm-hmm. destabilizing countries, you see those who are the, who, those Muslims who are unaware of the Islamic teachings will say, okay, they're because they're attacking us, although it's a political attack, we want to defend mm-hmm. an Islamic war. We want to wage an Islamic war against them. And not only are they waging war against Muslims, Muslims are killing Muslims like we've seen, what ISIS are doing. Um, they're threatening them. Um, they're Obviously, they're, they're, they're the massacres which have occurred uh, and, of course, at the same time, the, the damage which has which it has caused to the name of Islam, to the mm. name of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings mm-hmm. of Allah be upon him. And it's, again, like we've mentioned, completely against the teachings of Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, that uh, draws um, an, a line under that, that topic. We're going to go to a very short break. Please join us after the break when we'll be looking at uh, the other side of the coin, interfaith harmony. Muhammadan 
listening to the voice of islam radio assalamu alaikum peace and blessings to our listeners out there welcome back to the drive time show you're live with myself talib man and imam tahir halid um and we've just you know, concluded regarding um de-radicalization but we're moving on to interfaith hope uh, peace and harmony now in this show we're going to be discussing or this this hour we're going to be discussing interfaith hope and harmony now you know how do we actually promote interfaith dialogue between different religious communities when we see so much division in the world currently i mean how can we unite uh, to actually bring about hope because hope is that 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 light that imam that the uh, that torch which um just really it just illuminates the darkness that we are in currently uh, mm. globally yeah now the quran prohibits all forms of chaos and disruption of peace in society in clear terms it says in al-baqarah uh, chapter 2 verse 206 and allah loves not disorder and you know Tahir, what do we actually mean by interfaith so so interfaith uh, in its most basic sense is when people or groups from different religious or spiritual views and traditions they come together um, and similarly interfaith dialogue refers to cooperative constructive and positive interaction between people of different religious traditions um, the UK as we know it is a rel- relatively diverse country which has welcomed people of different backgrounds ethnicities and uh, and and religions and one of the ways to prevent people from forming stereotypical views or misconceptions about religion is through interfaith dialogue where people come together and represent their communities, cultures and religious beliefs in the hope to educate people, remove barriers and find commonalities. Now, the, the guiding light for any true Muslim is the Holy Quran, which was revealed to Islam's founder, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and time and time and again, the Holy Quran has instructed that uh, that Muslims should serve mankind and fulfil the needs of those who are suffering or are deprived in any way. Um, and it requires Muslims to be selfless and consumed by a love for others, regardless of if they belong to your faith or not. Is having a natural uh, love for mankind. Uh, and it requires us to be ever ready to make sacrifices for the sake of the peace and well-being of other people. Um, just to mention some some references um, in chapter three, for example, verse 111, God Almighty has stated that a Muslim is he who enjoins what is good and forbids evil. Uh, and here the Quran explains that true Muslims are people who promote goodness, they stay away from evil and injustice and enco- encourage others to do good deeds as well. Again, chapter 2 verse uh, 84 of the Holy Quran, God Almighty instructs Muslims to speak kindly at all times, to be considerate of the feelings of other people and to love and protect vulnerable members of society such as orphan children or those living in poverty or destitution. Again, chapter 90, verse 15 to 17, Muslims are instructed to feed the hungry, to show empathy and love to orphans and to help anyone in need. Um, so these are just some references and we're going to be talking mm-hmm. more about this throughout the throughout the show. And of course, talking to guests who belong to different faiths mm-hmm. who can tell us about the importance of 
interfaith, the importance of people of different faiths coming mm. together uh, and promoting peace, peace love and, and harmony. harmony. Yeah. And we're joined by our first guest of the day, actually, uh, Rabbi Laura, Laura Yana Halsner. I hope I've got that right, Rabbi. Very nearly. Rabbi Laura is great. Rabbi Laura. name is so long, and just ignore it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so um, you're a rabbi at Bromley Reform Synagogue. Thank you for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Pleasure. So we're talking about interfaith dialogue. I mean, is it? really that important anymore or has it or should it be more or have greater importance in you know in, in you know the, the the environment and the society that we find ourselves in i think what's changed is an acknowledgement that we need to move away from what is called sort of tea and samosas it's not <laughs> enough to say oh isn't it lovely jews and muslims we both love family and but I've got to, I've got to inject there, uh, Rabbi Laura. There's nothing wrong with tea and samosas. Let's let's have more of that and more of other stuff as well. <laughs> exactly. Or there might be chai and samosas. But um, it's moving away. The problem with tea and samosas is not that we have dark, you know chats and loveliness. Mm-hmm. Is that sometimes it's used as a cover to say, "Oh, look, we chat." Mm-hmm. I know this nice Muslim down the road, he's such a lovely chap, blah, blah, blah. But we don't actually have the conversations that are difficult. Mm. Um, because we, from a, for often from good reason, we don't want to be uncomfortable, we don't want to make the other person awkward, we might be conflict averse. So we don't have the, when it's hard, conversations. We don't have the Israel-Palestine conversations that are really mm-hmm. important and tend to be very divisive. Um, and we have to be able to have them in a way that is gentle but real. Um, so that we can build up our resilience. And resilience, as we know, let's just imagine from kind of like muscle build. Mm-hmm. You've got to have a bit of tear of the muscles, a bit of ache and pain to build the strength and resilience. Mm-hmm. So we do need to be in each other's company. And we know from, well, it sounds a bit awful, I'm going to say, social contract theory. You know, if you're in social contact, mm-hmm. that's the time that people will defend each other and look after each other and st- stand up for each other. So you just, you do need to know each other, but now, particularly between Jews and Muslims, uh, we need to have harder conversations. Mm. And when you mean by harder conversations regarding, you know, the conflict which is uh, currently in, you know, between Palestine and Israel, yeah, what do you feel? I mean, do you think that, say, for instance, the Western media is really kind of like treating Israel with kid gloves because, you know. It's it's you know, I suppose for myself quite um, appalling, really, the situation that uh, mm-hmm. the Palestinians find themselves in Gaza and in the occupied territories, um, yep. and we see these, whether they are you know um, truthful or not, but you know these uh, pictures and these videos on social media uh, showing Israeli forces beating up mm-hmm. you know. Um, just you know, bystanders really uh, for for you know not really doing anything but crossing the border, right? And the actual uh, limitations uh, that uh, living actually in Gaza uh, presents itself, uh, in the sense that you know you only have so many hours of electricity and the conditions. So when we talk about those, um, like you said, these difficult 
issues, right? The, I find that Western media, as soon as you approach these things, they right, we, we well, we don't really like to talk about them because, you know, we, we'll, we'll label you as being anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a couple of things in what you said. Yeah. One is um, that you said that the Western media treats Israel in the media with kids' gloves. Mm-hmm. I've worked in the occupied Palestinian territories, and sometimes I absolutely think that the Western media get it wrong. Mm. I think the question for dialogue is um, what's it like for Jews in Britain and Muslims in Britain to watch this happening? What does it do to me? How can we not have by proxy hatred Mm. for what's happening over there? Because it's not happening over here. Mm. And I'm sitting in High Barnet in like north outskirts of North London. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not in Gaza or in the occupied territories. But often people say to me, Muslims, some Muslims say to me, well, you know, when you get out of the occupied territories, I'm like, funny enough, I'm not actually there at the moment, you know, mm. and I'm not responsible. So I think the discussion, I want to make it deeper and say, let's ask each other, how do you feel the media is? How do you think it's fair towards Palestinians? Do you think it's fair towards Israelis? And more to the point, what does it do for you? As a Muslim in Britain, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about it as a Jew in Britain? That's the more profound conversation, mm, I think. Mm, no, I, I agree. I, I think Ty has got a question. Yeah. Um, do you feel that then, I mean, these discussions, these important discussions, crucial discussions, which people take to heart, really, a lot of, you can say, um, a lot of Jews will take this 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 conversation very strongly um, for the need for um, I mean for for the rights to be fulfilled really um, mm-hmm. whether that's Palestinian rights or whether that's uh, the rights of Israelis. Um, but do you feel that these need to be done at a higher level on a local level? Yes, they should also be done. But would this create more of um, you can say an openness in society? If there wasn't this label of discussing, if you're discussing it on a, on a larger platform, you're labelled as anti-Semitic. But if you were, uh, and and you'd be able to talk about it openly, um, rather yeah, than in a, I, in a in a smaller gathering. I think the thing about being concerned about being labelled either as Islamophobic or as anti-Semitic is really important. Mm. And actually, one of the things I just love that you've done is you've said some. Jews. You haven't said Jews. No, no. And that word, <laughs> no, but you say no, no, but it's unusual. Mm. Often people say Muslims think this or the Muslim community, lol, as though mm. there's one, um, think this. And what you've just done is diffuse that potential for racism, which mm-hmm. is Jews are X or Muslim or Y, by saying some Jewish people. So I do think that these conversations have to happen. Mm. I think it's too easy to slap down the uh, you know, anti-Muslim hatred or the anti-Semitism card. Although, of course, there are times when it's anti-Muslim hatred or anti-Semitism. And one way to have be in dialogue about it is to say, you might not have meant it, but to me it sounded like... I've been to uh, West Bank um, I've been to Palestine. I've seen, I've met Muslims over there. I've met, Mus- I've met Jews in in Haifa, um, in in Israel, in Tel Aviv. 
uh, and some of them are some amazing people, um, as you'd find. Who hate the occupation, by the way. Exactly, exactly. They hate what's I happening. I mean, really, they understand how immoral the occupation is yeah. and how corrosive it is for the very fabric of Israeli society as well. Mm. What Do you feel that there is a role of religion, What that religion plays a role in promoting world peace, whether that's Islam, whether that's Judaism, whether that's Christianity, the fact that people should return to their original teachings, mm. what their original book te- teaches them, do you think that will try and help promote peace in society, in the world? And, and you know, Rabbi, we're talking about this. I, I think Tahir is talking about as our imam here, our resident imam. But uh, in in terms of where we find ourselves now, currently, in this global situation, whether it be in the UK, and in fact, it's affecting everyone around the globe, this cost of living crisis, this uh, conflict in Ukraine, the conflicts that are happening around the world. Um, you know, is it because society has, you know, left or, or just kind of like moved away from the idea of a creator and the idea that religion per se is a good thing? So you two have just asked sort of different questions. Ah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) One was, can religion help promote, does it help promote peace? And the other one is, so... I'm happy to answer that. Just tell me which one you would like me. Let's go with let's go with Tahir's first. Can it p- promote okay. peace? <laughs> it can. I th- it doesn't necessarily. I think it's very much religion, like any other very strong and powerful force, can be at the force for superb wonderfulness and also destruction. And I think it's not about religion in the abstract. It's what we, as religious leaders, if you're an imam or a rabbi, or religious followers do. I do believe that if you start with the premise that the world is created for good, I mean, what I heard, the piece of Quran that I heard being um, quoted when I just came on, was absolutely beautiful. And if you take that as your premise of life, that our job as Muslims or Jews or religious people is to emulate God by doing the right thing, then yes, unless you're doing the right thing is imposing religion on someone else. I mean, you know, you can use and misuse religion, Mm. but to start with the premise that people are good, there is purpose in life and there is creation. For me, I hope that weights the dice towards goodness. Mm. Mm. So my part of the question. (laughs) (laughs) So what I mean by that, Rabbi, is do you feel that now society has... Um, say even since um, the 17th century, right? This movement away from religion per se, the idea of a creator, uh, and you know, embraced fully um, modernness and science. I I think the the wonderful benefits of religious solidarity, of community of identifying with the other, of looking after the people who have less than you in whatever way that manifests itself. If you don't have that kind of underpinning of society and solidarity, it can be extremely corrosive. And we need now, as you pointed out with finances and everything and these changes, and we don't even know what it's going to look like, um, I think it is very concerning, yes. Mm. 
but mm. it does depend on how we use it. Loads of disgusting things. I mean, you know, if, if we think about Jews and Muslims, we have been, I mean, in history, at the end of, you know, the Inquisition, the Crusades, it was horrendous for us in the name of religion. Mm. So it just depends on how you use it. We are very blessed that we have a very powerful, beautiful tool in our hand. We have to be very careful how we use it. Mm, mm, very well said. Well, Rabbi Laura, thank you uh, for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. In my complete pleasure. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. O two o eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And I think I'm going to relinquish that duty to Imam Tahir because you know he's not going to be doing that too often. Yeah, well, I, 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 tried to say, I tried to say it in the first hour, but you just jumped to it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I breathe as well, like, zero two. <laughs> well, you know, it's just <laughs> you're used to old, old habits die hard. Yeah, no, it? it's good. It's good because you're going to be the continuing to be the pilot here. But <laughs> well, yeah, let's 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 uh, yeah, pilot of a rudderless ship going around and around in circles. But anyway, you know, it's it's good. It's refreshing to have, and this is, I think, the crux and the need for, to have interfaith dialogue. Yeah, I mean, it really breaks the ice mm. um, of this this conflict, really. Mm. Um, but don't you think, Tahir, ultimately, I think, okay, let's forget about religion, right? What are humans most fearful of in terms of a response? Response in what terms? As no, say for instance, like um, what approach? Yeah, yeah. Say for instance, uh, okay. Let me just just say it right. How, what I think, it's the unknown. Yeah, yeah. It's that you know you. Whenever you anticipate something, the reality of it happening is never is never as you know bad or good as it was in your imagination. So what I'm trying to grasp at is, is that you not knowing someone else's thought processes and how they think and how they perceive until you until you actually just speak to them mm. right yeah, yeah. and you find out actually you know what not all and and I think uh, as you know rabbi laura says you know she was quite happy that we were saying some muslims and it wasn't our presumption that all sorry some jews yeah, yeah it wasn't our presumption that all jews had the same views yeah but to me, that's common sense. How can yeah. we all, or how can one uh, religious persuasion, whether it be uh, you know, uh, a Muslim, a Christian, a Jew, have that viewpoint? Common sense is not so common, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, they, should, and, and, they shouldn't call it a common sense, should yeah, they? It's a senselessness. I don't know, but I mean, it's... Um, what are you thinking? I'm thinking the opposite of common. To say something <laughs> uncommon, <you're>, uncommon sense. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 really um, this is it's a lack of um, you can say education. Mm. Those who are educated enough to understand what other faiths teach know that those who are practicing it, there's a majority of those who are practicing practicing it, and there'll be a minority. Who are not practicing? For example, if uh, if someone um, knows that Islam teaches and promotes love, peace, and harmony, they'll know that. Okay, if there's people on the media or there's some terrorists or radicalized Muslims, they're not following the true teachings of Islam because they know 
what Islam teaches. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with with uh, if a Muslim knows what what the Judaic teaches uh, teachings mm-hmm. teach, they'll know that what's happening in some parts of the world or what some Mus- or some Jews are practicing is against the teachings of 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 uh, of Moses. Mm. So it, it's it's a lack of education in but society. But that's common sense, right? Yeah, it's not so common. It's no again, but it's let me argue the point here, that it's common sense because look, all main right religions, okay, do not profess to take someone else's life. Yeah. That's a no no, right? Yeah. That's a number one no no. Yeah. In pretty much every religion that I've come across, right? Yeah. So that's what I'm saying, common sense. So when you actually see, you know, one authority taking the lives of, you know, someone else, whether it be Israel, Palestine, whether it be uh, Ukraine, yeah, against Russia, or you know, Syrian against Syrian. Yeah, you know that that actually transgresses even the laws of man mm. or morality. The, I think the the deeper problem is when you become desensitized to certain actions. Mm-hmm. So death, when you see it, normal. it becomes normal mm-hmm. because not only is it happening on a on a on a political basis mm-hmm. uh, just the wars you're seeing it on a local level with with gangs as well we discussed this in the first hour mm. but on the other side you also have religious uh, you could say radicalized criminals mm-hmm. um, and killings which are taking place so all of this it's you you become desensitized to the fact that every life is sacred whether that's taken on uh, even with natural disasters so hence my point are we moving away as a society in general away from the love of our creator yeah. or the the acknowledgement that we are um you know in should be in fear of our creator's wrath 100% 100% and without re- and the thing is religion teaches this mm. you go to your school books they won't teach you the secular books won't teach you this religion teaches you about the fear of god the fear of god morality with religion comes morality Mm-hmm. Yes, to some extent, you 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 can. Some books will teach you, or secular books will teach you about being good, being kind, being just. But ultimately, that comes from God. These are His attributes: mm-hmm. that He's kind, He's caring, He's just, uh, He's loving, and so on and so forth. There's mm-hmm. hundreds of attributes of God Almighty. Mm-hmm. But religion teaches this, mm-hmm. um, and with when you take religion out of the equation, then you're it's, it's, you're going inside this whirlwind. Mm-hmm. You will continue to go into turning away from God, mm. um, away from morality and immorality, ultimately. I was just thinking, yes, a moral vacuum. Yeah, a moral vacuum, mm. exactly. Yeah. Anyway, to speak more about interfaith dialogue, we're joined uh, next by, we're joined by Neil Fairlam, who is a priest at All Saints Church in Tilford. Uh, peace and blessings be upon you, Neil. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. No, no, pleasure. Um, of course, uh, Islamabad and Tilford is just um, uh, a short distance from where I live, so mm-hmm. I, I've got to I've got to know you there very well. Excellent, excellent. And being made very, and being made very welcome, which has been lovely. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, do you think we're talking about interfaith dialogue, Neil? So, do you think that uh, you know it is a requirement and is needed to create peace and harmony in society today? Well, I would entirely, entirely agree, and especially for uh, for us, if we are talking about ourselves as children of Abraham, as we are, the the, the Christian, the Muslim, and the mm-hmm. Jewish faith, 
uh, we all have a common heritage. We're all we're all children of of of, us, of you know of Abraham, and therefore, as the two great religions of the, of the world, Christianity and Islam, in terms of numbers, uh, that's our that's our challenge and that's our mission. Um, and it's it's I have a I have Jewish friends, particularly in Israel, and they're very skeptical about this. Yeah. they 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 feel what you have to do. And I can understand in Israel where 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 it's very difficult to cross boundaries and break down divisions and barriers. Um, my Jewish friends tell me you must plow your own furrow. You know, you 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 must travel on parallel lines, but don't attempt to join, don't attempt to cross any boundaries. Uh, and and when you see that in action, so you have in you have in Jerusalem the Dome on the Rock. The, uh, the Wailing Wall, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you have these vital places to the th- these three great religions, but um, they don't connect. They they just they you know they, they they run on separate lines, and I think it's it's our duty to t- try to understand each other. I mean, most Christians have no idea uh, that Mary is mentioned more than thirty times in the Quran. Um, Jesus, of course, nearly as many times as a prophet. Uh, they have simply no idea um, of of what our our, our co-religionists in this in this country uh, share together as a common inheritance. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, this co- I mean, when we're talking about the common, you know, what in terms of interfaith activities? Would you suggest are those of which are you know best suited to to kind of breaking down those um, I suppose those walls of the unknown for each other? What have you well, found has, in your it, experience? It, it yeah. has to be well. I I had at one time quite a lot to do when I was living in South London at the time with with um, for one reason or another with 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 Jewish art activities, and I used I used to go. To the synagogue I used to share in the worship, and um, since I've been in Tilford, I, there's, of course there's been a special opportunity in Islamabad to go there um, to welcome um, people to some of the church activities when there's a community response, like Remembrance Sunday and so on, and to the, the activities that take place um, as as a large village in which we have community events in which we the church has has a stand um uh the the Ahmadiyya community has a stand um and it's just to actually sort of normalize this first of mm-hmm. all uh, uh but we're dealing with with i'm sorry to say on 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 the christian side speaking as a christian minister we have a number of people who would 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 simply stand back from that, and that includes some ministers who would say that this is this is a betrayal of of, of the principles of one's religion to engage in in dialogue, and I I, I think that's that's awful. But but Neil, um, why so, why why would some fellow why, they, ministers they the truth, say that is a betrayal? You know, they they have the truth, you see. Uh, we have <laughs> the truth. I know some Christians. <laughs> came there, I, I can only speak for Christians. You know, we have the truth, uh, mm. and it will dilute it to. Uh, uh, to say that there are points of contact, well, not only points of contact, whole areas of contact um, that we share, we share a common, you know, a common inheritance. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're not ever going to sort of cross any boundaries, not ever make any understanding. Um, so I, I, actually, in some in some ways, uh, I have to say that women can do this in some ways better than men because mm. I, I've noticed that in in Tilford, in in, in uh, it's the women's groups in in um, Islamabad and the women's groups in the churches who have actually done more to get together mm-hmm. uh, and share together. Um, and women are better at that. Men take up positions, you know. <laughs> Do you do you uh, find that the, the the fact of the matter is that the, you know the ma- male um, intransigence to to changing their opinion uh, oh, yes, is yes, is yes, is at yes, fault right. here? Yes, 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 yes. Um, I think there's no I think there's no doubt that women are more are more practical. I think. Mm. Mm. I mean that's <laughs> that, that that that's an unfortunate thing because there's so many beauties in each religion, and if you say for instance we're an observer. Oh. Of all the main uh, stream religions, whether they be Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, they they all hearken, or the the central tenets are there. You know, there's a creator. You worship that creator. You worship yeah. creation. Full stop. Yeah. Right, and then you have your rules regarding the morality. So there's more points of commonality amongst different religions than there would be. Um, you know divisiveness i mean wouldn't that be a better thing so when you when you say i found it quite um i don't know what the word was disheartening or disappointing when you well, it, it, when, it when you said that um, i remember going to an i remember going when i was training for the church to an interfaith meeting and we, we went to a mosque and we, we we were you know asked to um people are you know um, questions to, you know were put to the imam uh, and, and they were mostly, some of my evangelical Christian colleagues, you know, were, were keen to emphasize the, the differences between faiths. And, but I, I said to the, the imam, how does a Muslim experience the forgiveness of God? Mm-hmm. And he, he it, 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 it completely transformed the evening because he actually sort of, he wanted to share that. And mm. it came alive, you know. Um, he was being challenged about, about, Sort of why do you do this? Why do you do that? Kind of more yeah, yeah, of a confrontational. That's right. That's right. And, and what's your attitude to women? And why? You know, mm. what's the, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, but when I asked that question of him, how, how, how does the Muslim experience the forgiveness of God? And um, it came alive because he was able to share from the heart what that what that meant. Mm. Um, and. Um, it obviously takes time. It, it, it takes patience, um, and um, it takes dialogue. And we just we have to be more and more open to that. And when we've seen, as we did during lockdown, when we've seen, for example, within your community, how much you gave to community support, and particularly your young men who, who went and did all kinds of volunteer driving and shopping and all kinds of things like that for people who were stuck at home and so on um, that then of course they see it in action and, and that breaks it down mm. um, uh, and 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 social social events uh, you are particularly hospitable and, and hospitality is, is a good thing in itself but it also it is a form of evangelism it is it is a it is a form of, of 
you're breaking down the trust, breaking down, and you are particularly, I have to say, the, um, as a Maori is particularly hospitable and generous. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that, um, that can only be a good thing. Mm. Thank you for that very nice comment, Neil. I mean, just um, we've seen the the ongoing conflict between Ukraine and Russia and other conflicts around the world as well. Do you think these nations need to turn to God in order to obtain peace? Well, the huge, the huge irony, of course, uh, in, in Ukraine and Russia is that they're both Orthodox. Uh, they, they both are the Orthodox tradition uh, of the Eastern Church. Uh, and you, in their liturgy, um, you know, they would be very similar. I and mean, you wouldn't know uh, whether you were in a Russian or, or an or Ukrainian Orthodox Church, except for language, um, in terms of the, the nature of the services. And, the, and yet they're divided uh, bitterly uh, by the, their, their faith in a way that's, that's highly distressing. And, and, and again, this is not so much the, the people, the congregations, it's, it's the corruption that enters into all religions, and that's always a besetting sin, uh, the misuse of power, uh, authoritarianism, um, in the way that the, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church has backed Mr. Putin in, in a naked, uh, uh, you know, sort of assertion uh, that the, you know, that it's patriotic to be Russian and it's patriotic to be Russian Orthodox, um, and to support. Uh, this is when this is when religion is corrupted politically. Um, to to su- suppress and and, and and destroy their brother Ukrainians, sharing not you know not just sharing the Christian faith, but sharing the same Orthodox faith in terms of the way they worship. And so this is always a, a huge temptation in in all religions. Power uh, power corrupts. You know, uh, uh, said a famous 19th century historian Lord Acton. You know, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, and, and all religions have to be, I think, very aware um, of, uh, that, you know, um, I have come among you, says Jesus, as one who serves. You know, the great man lord it over creation. But you must be, says Jesus to his followers, you, you must be as one who serves rather than who is served. Mm. Um, and, and it's in service to humanity um, uh, that the spirit, the true spirit of, of, of Christianity, from my point of view, is, um, and from what I understand of Islam, is, is expressed. Um, uh, and, uh, but the, 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 this is all, this is always a temptation. Uh, power, power mm. um, corrupts. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Father Neil Fairlan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you no, for no, joining thank us uh, you this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you. Thank Bye you. Bye. Have a have a have a good afternoon. You too. Zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call, and that will be me saying it for probably the last time. <laughs> <laughs> As usual, he's forgotten the the Twitter handle. Oh yeah, and you can tweet to us uh, at Voice of Islam UK. Um, and most probably the last time you'll forget that I, as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, this this discussion of um, interfaith harmony. I mean, coming from the Islamic perspective, there's 
if we look at how Islam has, in a way, left an example, a, a really um, an immaculate example of mm-hmm. interfaith harmony, is at the time of the Holy Prophet, peace mm-hmm. and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, where we saw he was um, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He was unanimously decided and agreed upon as the chief. Or, or the you can say, yeah, the chief of the of the of Medina, mm-hmm. uh, and within Medina you had Christians, Jews, Jews, Jews. and Muslims living, mm-hmm. um, and so he was th- there. He, he was uh, such. I mean, the Holy Prophet's example of of justice, of love, of kindness is unmatched, um, unwavered. Whether that was from a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew, he would be very firm mm-hmm. with justice. Um, and with that, people would have his, their trust in him, their trust in Islam. Mm-hmm. And even if, if we look at Spain as well, Spain, um, Islam was flourishing in Spain, uh, you can say around a thousand years ago. Um, people were living under an Islamic governance. And they, when I think, uh, when then, um, either, either it was from France or, or another country, outsiders came in and they took the Muslims out. Mm. Uh, they were Muslims were then expelled from Spain. They were the people were crying out for the Muslims to come back, because they wanted that Islamic rule, that government mm-hmm. over them, because of that, that interfaith, that peace mm-hmm. which Islam provided. Um, that that kindness, that love, that justice, really, mm-hmm. which Islam provides. Um, so that. Well, we should be counter that with what true Islam provides. Exactly. Not these, um, I suppose, um, counterfeit caliphates that uh, certain um, fractions that proclaim themselves to be Islamic. Uh, have named themselves, like for mm. instance, ISIS. Yeah, and ultimately it comes back to God Almighty. Mm. We we discussed this earlier on that if there is no uh, religion, can we find peace? Can we can we find morality? Really, it's not possible without God Almighty. You will not be able to have that peace in society. The words of the fourth caliph um, are here. I mean, we he. Uh, may Allah be pleased with him. He said that there can be no peace without God. This is that secret without knowing which there can be no contentment for any individual, nor can there be any assurance of peace in society. There is no other way that leads to real peace and contentment. This is a fallacy and sheer ignorance that man can survive without God. If there is no place for God, then there is no peace and recognition of this, in fact, is the peak of all wisdom. Mm. And even within our own community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, we have um, yearly uh, National Peace Symposium. So in 2004, His Holiness uh, launched an annual National Peace Symposium in which guests from all walks of life come together to exchange ideas on the promotion of peace and harmony. Uh, each year, the symposium attracts many serving ministers, parliamentarians, pol- politicians, religious li- leaders, and other dignitaries. Um, whilst uh, and, and actually, there there is a prize, the Ahmadiyya Muslim Prize for the Advancement of Peace, 
now this is an international peace award uh, for individuals or organizations that have demonstrated an extraordinary commitment and service to the cause of peace and huma- humanitarianism. This is a great way to motivate individuals to strive for peace as well as recognizing their hard work and set an example for others to see and attain. And mm. I mean sorry, if we if we coming back to to I mean a part of this I mean we, we're seeing in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community um the amount of effort which is um or you can say the initiatives the different initiatives which is launched by the caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community which provides comprehensive solutions towards achieving world peace mm-hmm. um with the 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 true islam pathway to peace campaign for example it presents fundamental solutions based on the teachings of islam as presented by the current world head of the amdiya muslim community the caliph his holiness um hazrat mirza masrur ahmed may Allah be his helper his helper um and these fundamental solutions include nine fundamentals of peace of which we'd like to put forward just two we're going to present two um in the few minutes that we have um the first one is establish absolute justice mm-hmm. and the concept of justice transcends multiple facets of human life from within our homes to our uh, municipalities provinces our nations and ultimately the world we live in and in all these aspects just as we wouldn't accept our own rights to be usurped we should also not be willing to accept the rights of others being stripped away is is the responsibility of each human being to uphold a high standard of justice then in the holy quran god almighty has stated that o ye who believe be strict in observing justice and be witnesses for god even though it be against yourselves or against parents and kindred whether he be rich or poor allah is more regardful of them of them both than you are therefore follow not low desires so that you may be able to act equitably and if you conceal the truth or evade it then remember that allah is well aware of what you do this is from chapter 4 verse 136 mm. and another uh, one of the yeah, the, and, the pathway to peace and in fact it's actually the ninth and final step of the pathway to peace initiative and it stresses the need to serve humanity irrespective of race religion or creed uh, in the holy quran god almighty states in chapter 3 verse 105 and let there be among you a body of men who should invite to good goodness and enjoin equity and forbid evil and is they who shall prosper now the teachings of the holy quran and the example of the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him direct us on how best to serve uh, our humanity or our mankind i should say the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him practiced the teachings of the holy quran to the fullest extent and is the best example of the true representation of service to mankind and to god almighty and it is why god almighty says in the holy quran uh in chapter 2 verse 238 and do not forget to do good to one another and about the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him the holy quran says and we have sent thee not but as a blessing uh but as a mercy for the entire universe for all peoples uh in another verse um it states that verily you have you have in the prophet of allah an excellent model so you know in those two verses already you have the the attributes of which you must uh, as a human being and 
you know, specifically as a, a Muslim, aspire to. Now, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, emphasized love, sympathy, and kindness towards all. He also emphasized that we must show each other great uh, appreciation. He said in one, uh, uh, in one uh, relating that one who is not grateful to mankind is not grateful to Allah. Hmm. And of course, I mean, we see again that with this you understand what the rights of mankind are. Mm-hmm. To to be grateful for one another, to be kind to one another, caring to one another, and it's not restricted to just your household, but again, it's your, your to to your neighbours, to to your friends, family, uh, everyone in your area, and then your country, international, internationally. I mean, these th- these these the 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 teachings of Islam are not confined; they're they're not restricted in that way. But I, th- I I mean to to crystallize it. I think if you our two tenets are I mean we have five pillars of faith in Islam but the two uh, tenets within Islam are number one you know to uh, to to believe in God Almighty and to worship God Almighty number two to uh, you know to to do your best to your brother you know to humanity fulfill the rights to fulfill the rights of your you know your fellow brother so really and quite, you know, it's common sense once again, right? That if you were to actually um, uphold these two tenets in your heart, then I don't think we would actually have as many problems in the world as we have today. Yeah. And like we mentioned this last week as well, that the, these, the rights of mankind are, you can say, God Almighty has, has given emphasis to them, to the rights of mankind. Um, I mean, if if you're a religious person, you're practicing your faith. It's time for prayer, uh, and someone is in need. Someone is requires your help, your assistance. Then the rights of mankind, uh, you can say, uh, supersede the rights of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, God Almighty has has said that forget prayer for now. Go and help that person who needs your help, and that way you're fulfilling their rights. Um, and ultimately, we know that there's no doubt that the task of creating peace, hope and harmony in the world is challenging. It definitely is not a task for one man. Mm. And this task demands unity and it is through interfaith dialogue that we can achieve it. His Holiness, the Louisville Caliph of the Amdi Muslim community, mentioned in one of his speeches on the 11th of February 2014. He said, some people may think that what I am saying is rather idealistic and impossible to practically achieve. Yet when we look at the long history of religions, we come to realize that such a compassionate and caring society is exactly what God desires. Mm, And with that, I will let my esteemed co-host sign us off. Uh, It has been a pleasure um, again for today's show as well, today's discussion. um, And uh, we will end uh, by thanking our producers and and, 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 uh, technical staff. Uh, Today's show was by Soma Ahmed and Tayyiba Khan. Uh, from myself, Tahir Khalid and Talibman. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace be upon you.